It's Alum Group's Andrea Lay, Packview's Melissa Burdick, special guest Jackie Donowski from Flywheel, and I'm PVSB, also from Flywheel. Before we get to the CPG Guys episode you've downloaded, it's the week of May 13th, and it's time for the Fresh Four. Four curated news stories from the past week. We find them polyhistorically intriguing. We hope you do too. They're brought to you through our partnership with Retail Wit, your one-stop shop for retail industry intelligence and news. Retailwit.com. It's retail right now. Jackie, kick us off, would you? Disney Advertising and Walmart Connect to bring closed-loop attribution to streaming advertisers. Well, hello there, Fresh Boy listeners. Disney Advertising and Walmart Connect have solidified an agreement to bring the retailer's industry-leading audience solutions and measurement to Disney's addressable streaming inventory. The collaboration will enable enhanced audience targeting and outcome-based measurements for brand campaigns across Disney's streaming portfolio, including Hulu and Disney+. Connecting Walmart's customer insights with Disney's proprietary audience graph will help advertisers reach their desired audiences and measure the impact of their campaigns through closed-loop attribution. Thanks, Jackie. Andrea, over to you. Hello, Fresh 4 listeners. NBC Universal and Instacart link up to bring retail media opportunities to TV. NBC Universal and Instacart are expanding their existing partnership to include a new retail media workstream that will enable Instacart's CPG advertisers to connect with consumers via NBC Universal's streaming and linear television content. In late 2023, the companies teamed up to include access to NBC Universal's streaming platform Peacock as part of the Instacart Plus membership package. Now, with this new first-party data collaboration, advertisers will be able to reach consumers through NBC Universal's content and measure the impact of their campaigns by leveraging ad exposure and purchase data from Instacart. Thank you, Andrea. Melissa, what do you have for us? Amazon has announced a new country that they're opening up. Amazon has announced that it will launch a new dedicated website for Ireland in 2025. Currently, most Irish customers use Amazon sites based in the UK or other European countries. The company said the Irish site will mean that users will be able to avoid additional customs charges and currency conversion fees, and it will also lead to faster delivery and returns for many items. All right, over to you, Peter. Welcome to another episode of the CPG Guys podcast. Our co-hosts, Sri Rajagopalan and Peter V.S. Bond, explore how brands and retailers engage with consumers online, in-store, and everywhere in between. And now, here are Sri and Peter. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the CPG Guys podcast. I'm the Brooklyn Boys of Summer CPG Guy. My name is PVSB, and my domain expertise revolves around the digital shelf, its content, retail, customer data insights, CRM, and loyalty. My co-host, he's the Bronx Bomber CPG guy and an expert at branding, direct-to-consumer, unified commerce, retail media, and marketplaces. Please join me in welcoming the man who goes by one name, Shri. Shri, how are you doing today? Doing awesome, Peter. Sunny, peachy day in New York City today. Pleasure to have our special guest that you will announce shortly. And for all our fans, this is opening day of Major League Baseball. The Yankees have played their game. The Dodgers are yet to play their game. 
how the Yankees do before he takes a stab talks about the Yankee results I do want to remind our audience if you heard our previous episode we have a genuine MLB fan who actually thought last Wednesday was opening day and insisted no, last Wednesday Sunday so whenever it was that it was the opening day because it was the ESPN game of the week a true MLB fan All right. So what Sheree is trying to disguise is the fact that as of this afternoon, the Yankees have been mathematically eliminated from the playoffs. So we're just going to put that aside and get to the conversation. Uh, Before we actually introduce our guest, I want to remind our audience that all of our content, we have some great series on profitability, women's leadership, where Sheree and I were able to help contribute $8,000 to Susan G. Komen Foundation. We had a founder series in the first quarter of this year an ongoing retailer series. It's all free. So no money, doesn't cost you anything. Just go to cbgguys.com and you can find it there. We have a lot of other content, including a list of our favorite podcasts. Tree, I'm going to update that because I found a couple more that I think are worthy of our our list of, of superior podcasts. So I'll be updating that next week while I'm doing a little vacation. But in any event, I also want to remind you that our, our podcast is audience-driven and that means you give us feedback. We try to tailor our guests and our content to that. The best way you can share with us what you'd like to hear about, and who you'd like us to have on the podcast, it's pretty simple. Go to ratethispodcast.com slash guys. Leave us a rating and review on the Apple platform. That'll be very helpful. So let's get on to the main event, Shree. Our guest today was introduced to us by previous guest, Andrea Lee at IdeoClick. Our guest spent nine years working at one of, you know, my favorite grocery retailers, uh, the super regional out of Rochester, Wegmans. And then he went on to build the consumables and fresh business at, what was the, what's that Seattle-based company we talk about often? Oh, it's Amazon. Yeah, that's where he was. What about the name every now and then? I know. Rainforest and Brazil. comes into the conversation. They're, you know, they're occasionally they're, they're top of mind. But in any event. More recently, he serves as the CEO and managing partner of Consumer Equity Partners. Uh, that's actually one of the parent investors of IdeoClick and where he actually serves as the chairman of that company. He's here to talk to us today primarily about his capacity of, as CEO of another company's portfolio, one that Shri and I were introduced to by one of his brand clients, this company is called Replenium, which he founded in, I believe, 2013. You can correct me if I'm wrong later. But in previous episodes, you've heard Shri and me talk about how brands should be investing in retail brand building capabilities, notably this concept of subscribe and save features. Replenium is a different take on this. It's not just about scheduling the repurchase. It takes into account more than that. We're going to kind of dig in and ask him to educate us about that. Please join us in welcoming to the CPG Guys podcast, Tom Furphy. Tom, welcome. Hope you're doing well. How are you today? I'm doing great. And thank you guys so much for having me. All right. Before we get into a couple of questions, first of all, Tom, do you have a baseball preference? Yankees, Dodgers, other? Oh, you know, I grew up, I was born uh, in New York, and uh, I grew up a Mets fan. Okay, no, that's okay. My so New York affiliations I, were, were handed down to me by my dad, so I, I and I, and I can't, I'm not even going to go on the football side of the equation. But I'm we're, the, I'm we're the, both Giants fans. That's right, what I'm yeah. I unfortunately am not. Okay, but I can tell you, yes. Mets are okay, 
because it's a blend of the Giants and the Dodgers to make up for the loss. Yeah. But Shree and I are actually going to the Sunday, August 15th Dodger game at City Field. So totally happy. And one of the things I love about it, you walk right into the, the lower level behind home base entrance. There is an homage to my personal hero with the big number 42. That's Jackie Robinson. So oh, I love that. Anyhow. And if weather right. permits, there will be some live broadcasting of the CPG guys. I think there will be. City I Field. think there will be from City Field. Okay, Tom, before we get into our, our uh, intense grilling of you, you know we don't do that. <laughs> uh, our audience loves to learn while they're listening and dig in. Could you, first of all, share with them where online they can learn more about Replenium? And then after that, if you could give us just a little overview about what you're doing with Consumer Equity Partners. Absolutely. Um, well, you can go to replenium.com. Uh, and as well, we're on all the, all the social media outlets as well. Um, you know, Facebook, uh, Twitter, and uh, you can even find us showing up on Clubhouse now and then. Uh, so we're, are, you, are you on uh, TikTok yet? Because, you know, we're on TikTok. Uh, not yet TikTok, but okay. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that after the show, but it's, all right. that's awesome. But we're, we're also clubhouse fans. We, we, we do, we clubhouse all the time. Mission oh, and no, life, Peter, get Tom on TikTok. I know we got to get him on TikTok. We'll work on that. Cut me um, in. Tell us, tell us about consumer equity partners. Yeah. So consumer equity partners, um, it's our venture fund, uh, based, uh, in Seattle. Not that it really matters where you're based nowadays. Um, you know, we, as you had mentioned, we got to Amazon in the relatively early days. Um, we were charged with building a CPG e-commerce business on top of a platform that was tuned, you know, to sell uh, books and music and movies and in physical form, by the way. Um, and then we had to, we had to, you know, create this business of, of products that, uh, you know, are, are way outside, way far afield of that, but are super important to customers. So after being at Amazon for a number of years, building those businesses, so everything from prestige, beauty, health and personal care to grocery, building capabilities like subscribe and save, a lot of the stuff you see in the recommendations engine today, starting and running Amazon Fresh within that as well. Like we created this, uh, I, would, I would call it like a relatively high level of disruption, for lack of a better term, uh, in the industry. And as we were doing that, we said, you know, customers are really digging what we're doing. Um, Partners, like they like the volume we're giving them, but they hate working with us uh, because, you know, we're so much different than any other retailer and we're placing all these demands on them that are just, you know, they're just weren't, weren't used to. Um, and we're creating this kind of new competitive dynamic uh, in retail that we thought as we looked way forward could get really interesting, right? If you look forward to a time when Amazon's 20% of retail, you know, what does that mean? So we built an investment thesis off of that. We said, Geez, based on that, we're creating great opportunities to help the world work better kind of with and through Amazon. Um, that ultimately became IdealClick. Um, and then we said, you know, there's also real investability around helping the world either compete with Amazon if you're a retailer or hedge against reliance on Amazon if you're a brand. Um, so, you know, competing against Amazon uh, as a retailer, businesses like Bevy Up that we sold to Nordstrom, Businesses like Replenium, which is an auto-replenishment platform for the world uh, outside of Amazon, you know, that helps retailers compete. And both of those companies and some other things we're spinning up, you know, really help brands go to market in new ways, both direct to consumers and through, um, you know, and through and in conjunction with retailers. So we have an investment thesis around those areas, you know, things that are going to be disrupted around retail, 
some disruption in supply chain, things like uh, self-care, uh, you know, uh, digital marketing, you know, those kinds of areas. Um, and so that's our investment vehicle. Uh, it was originally funded out of our out of our Amazon uh, uh, returns, um, and then we've since brought in additional outside investors as well. That is very helpful, Tom. Thank you for that, and also thank you for allowing us to dispense with the standard standard Amazon six page brief. In preparation for this podcast, Shri and I always, we never get past page two. It's just too frustrating for us. It's probably why we don't work at Amazon, but in any event. Actually, it's right. a low PowerPoint, Microsoft Word culture, and we have lived through to that expectation for you, Tom. <laughs> nice. All right. So let's get to the questions. Why are retailer-based subscription services so desirable uh, for consumers? Are there specific types of products that lend more favorably to this model? Is there something about the experience of purchasing into a subscription that pleases shoppers? What are your thoughts on this? You know, that's a really good question. Um, and, you know, I will say when we originally built Subscribe and Save at Amazon, the motivator for building it was we knew at Amazon we couldn't have a complete assortment, right? We couldn't be a complete solution for any of our customers. We also couldn't be a complete solution for any of our brand partners because we couldn't carry all their products. So, okay, so we have these two incompletes in our score. So how are we going to win, right? And we said, well, you know, we probably can build into the platform the capability for folks to put the stuff they get on a regular basis, you know, on a repeat purchase cycle so they can set it and forget it. So it was a complete, we didn't do any consumer research or anything, which is kind of our gut uh, feeling. And so we built that capability and you know, obviously, it it, uh, it took off and it did really well. And I think we learned some things along the way with that. We learned that customers that are loyal to a product love to do that because they just love to not have to worry about running out of stock. They want to know they're getting a good value on it, um, and they want to know that the retailer is taking care of it for them. It's almost like when you put something on bill pay, right? You don't you're not doing it necessarily to save money. You're doing it just because you don't want the hassle of having to worry about. It. Right. And, you know, we thought when, you know, offering a, a discount on the product that, you know, that was going to be why customers are doing it because they get this great deal uh, on it. And, you know, they're going to, you know, they're going to, they're going to sign up for the deal. And that probably got some customers into it at first. But as we did consumer research on it after we had launched it uh, and over the years since, you know, we found out that customers really were doing it for the convenience uh, over the value. So I think it's really a convenience play. It's, it's taking that burden off of, of, of the to-do list uh, of the customer. The fewer things they can have on their active shopping list, frankly, for them, the better, right? They'd rather have to worry about fewer things. Um, so that, you know, that, that, fits that, um, that fits that need really well. I will say that, we, you know, we learned a lot about that over time as far as like which categories would work well for this, you know, to your question. Um, the initial categories that took off were the ones you'd expect, you know, uh, vitamin supplements, baby care, you know, any kind of regular use, regimen product, like a lot of personal care products, even a bunch of beauty products um, that tend to be replenishment items. You know, once you're past discovery and you find that that item that you like on a regular basis, that works well uh, in subscribe and save. But we also were surprised at some of the kind of obscure products that folks would put on it. You know, if you could, if you found a retailer that carried, you know, the 42nd flavor of Jello, 
um, that your family just really loves. You know, you'll buy a six pack of that, you know, every couple months. And uh, and so, you know, we were pretty uh, generous in the amount of our assortment that we lit up uh, at Amazon in the program. And, you know, I will say that, you know, the 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 range of categories that are being purchased is fairly broad, much broader than you'd expect. Retailers have traditionally been focused on preset systematic reordering of a product. Variables that have gone into the mix classically are historicals, last year's seasonality, but they don't really vary year over year. And then you look at COVID. One of the hardest things we say on the show that people are going to find in 2021 and 22 is actually planning. Because looking at historicals and anniversarying is a foreign concept at this stage. In your estimation, what's the better model? And is it not truly what the consumer needs, just systematic reordering? Like what's missing to do the right thing? You know, uh, traditional subscription platforms are architected in what we would we would call that around the product. So at its core, it's a product architecture. It is, you know, I'm Shri. I pick this product that I want on a regular basis. And maybe you can recommend to me, you know, the most common, you know, repeat cycle of that. You know, maybe I'll know as a customer, yeah, this is in every two week or in every six week. Maybe I'll know that. I usually won't quite know it right. But I'll put that product on that cycle. And then that product will be, you know, set to me on that predetermined um, uh, regimen or predetermined interval. And then if I if I end up that that's too too slow or too fast, I have to go in and adjust that. And that ends up causing something that we called uh, at Amazon and since subscription fatigue, right? So having to, you know, actively manage your inventory level at home and go in on a skew by skew basis. Uh, and manage that uh, is tedious. If you have a baby in a size one diaper, the baby's going to grow. You know what they're going to need next? Size two. Well, on Amazon, you know what you have to do? You have to go in and cancel your size one product subscription and go sign up for a size two product subscription, right? Or what if, you know, there's a nutrition bar that you like and you want to toggle between a couple, a couple different flavors. All right, well, at Amazon, you'd have to set one up, you know, like every other month, and then another one up every other month and manage those back and forth. So there's a fundamental flaw in traditional subscription around being uh, what I would say kind of product architected. Um, when we thought about how to approach auto replenishment, you know, we thought about it being what we call solution architected, right? So consumers solve needs, right? Shoppers are looking to have needs solved. And as a mom, if I have a diapering need, um, and I pick the brand of diaper and the style of diaper within that brand that I like, I want to I pick that and be good. And I want the system to at least suggest to me when it's time to switch to size two um, and be able to easily switch within that and have it just go from size one to size two to size three. Or if I want to switch between flavors, right, be able to easily do that or between scents of uh, deodorant, you know, I want to be able to do that. And this doesn't sound like necessarily all that exciting, but it's that the mundaneness of the repeat purchase, you know, that can one of those things that can lead to subscription fatigue, that when we think about auto replenishment and what that means versus subscription, uh, that's a key differentiator. Um, one of the key differences between the two, uh, b- between traditional product subscription and uh, uh, auto replenishment is basically that auto replenishment, we, what we like to say, takes the good parts of the utility of product subscription, 
adds the element of machine learning to that, right? Because we're, our machine learning is so much stronger today than it was 15 years ago when we launched Subscribe and Save, right? Um, and we have a lot more data and we're a lot more sophisticated in how we can mine that data. So if we can inform you know, the platform and inform the customer's decision process with artificial intelligence, with machine learning, we could be a lot better at recommending replenishment intervals, right, like items to go with that. And then we give customers really good visibility tools and the ability to kind of you know, modify those, those replenishments over time. That's all super important. And then you know, auto replenishment also, one of the cool things with that is you know, on the retail side, it doesn't have to exist outside of the traditional basket either. It can actually drive tendering within the basket so that you don't have to manage you know, multiple uh, purchase flows as a customer. Your CTO, Umer Bashir, also came from Amazon, worked on subscribe and save, and you kind of referenced it a second ago. But can you dig a little deeper into how you are leveraging machine learning to enable this capability that, that as you described, prevents the consumer from reaching subscription fatigue? Because I'll tell you something. I'm still sitting on about six years of Dollar Shave Club razors that I'm I'm probably never going to get rid of, but uh, I'd love to know how you're trying to solve this issue with machine learning. Well, if you need to offload any of that inventory, just let me know. I can okay, always, good. I can always use more use use more horsepower. Um, yeah, you know, um, and and you mentioned that we that we started the company in 2013. Here we are in 2021, and our big retail launches are actually just happening now. So what the heck we've been doing for eight years? Well, for the majority of those eight years was, was architecting the platform. And a key part of the platform architecture is this introduction of machine learning uh, into, uh, in, into, the, into the product. So we've been able to build some pretty amazing data sets and machine learning capabilities on top of the data sets um, with a source being one of the major uh, data providers, you know, household name, uh, gave us a set of like 70 million consumer transactions. Um, we took those consumer transactions and, you know, we've, we've mined them and we've learned a lot from them. Uh, so our machine learning knows things like, based on the cubic centimeters of toilet paper consumed, how many ounces of toothpaste should be consumed, right? Because, you know, the one is a proxy for the size of household and the other numbers of mouths in the household further up the supply chain. Uh, you know, that's, um, you know, that, that's, the, those are relative numbers, right? So we use machine learning in a few different ways. And Umer Bashir, um, he led two key engineering teams at Amazon. He led the subscribe and save team, but he also led the, um, I think we called it accessorization, which was a uh, recommending of additional products based on what you also bought, right? Which We've all bought things off of that, off of Umer's recommendations. So he led both of those at Amazon. So I started working with Umer back, you know, forever ago uh, at Amazon. So when the opportunity to bring Replenium to market uh, came to fruition, Umer was, you know, one of the very first people we called to bring in to work on this. So we've been able to take this machine learning and, and, and based on that, we can do two things for customers. One, we can recommend products to you as a customer based on other things you've bought, other things customers like you have bought, and we can identify in the, um, you know, kind of in the, the, the range of products, you know, you should be buying into your home. We can identify where there are holes. 
So we, we recommend, you know, we recommend products based on those holes. Um, then we can also take our machine learning and apply um, consumption machine learning to that and be able to recommend appropriate intervals based on your household. They're never perfect, uh, but they're usually close enough that you can, you can, you can get them, you know, you can lower the barrier of adoption uh, to this and then lower the maintenance barrier or maintenance burden uh, on customers once you do that. So the data sets that we use, we use this aggregated data set that we started with. We use retailers aggregated data. And as you guys both well know, retailers have very, very much varied sophistication in the type of data they have and their ability to, to mine that data. Um, so, but we can leverage. So, and if the retailer is doing some great machine learning in that, awesome. We'll take the output of that. We don't need to, to layer too much of ours on top of that. We take specific customer trailing data as well. So when you authenticate, you know, you're on the retailer site uh, or you're on the brand site and you authenticate, uh, we can, you know, we'll, we'll through a token, be able to see your, tra your trailing purchase history if the retailer or brand makes that available. And then we can make recommendations based on that. And then finally, we also incorporate brand data because a lot of brands have pretty good, um, pretty good data on their side as far as what they expect consumption rates of their products to be, right? And so we're able to kind of take those all together and develop some pretty, pretty sophisticated and effective uh, recommendations for folks and helping them load up the replenishment baskets. In a previous question, you talked about machine learning and artificial intelligence. What's machine learning and artificial intelligence telling you about the world of 1P, first party? First, especially when it comes to brands wanting to create first party relationships with consumers. Replenishable goods, first party relationships, they almost seem like a magnet attracting each other. But what's the major value proposition for a brand to do this when they may be at like 20,000 store doors plus in the United States? And why would they sign up for a replenium type replenishable solution when the consumer has been trained over the course of history? I can just go back to the existing brick and mortar store and pick it up. And now I can click on Amazon. Well, we want to appeal to the brand on a, on a few different dimensions. Uh, one, we fully believe that brands need to establish direct relationships with their end customers. Retailers are a necessary partner uh, in go-to-market for sure, because they're great aggregators of demand. They provide a good service for the end customer, provided they provide the service well. You know, the, in theory, they should provide a really good service for the end customer. So there's value you know, uh, you know, to the customer and the retailer's participation in that. But that said, you know, especially with the ability to establish digital connections with your end customers as a brand, with your ability to gather data from that, leverage that data to market back directly to those customers, um, you should be able to have that direct relationship and to be able to leverage that. Um, you know, and, and you know, we see, and you guys know this well, um, I think most brands agree that they would like to do more of that, uh, you know, or, um, and I think what, what ends up potentially getting in the way of, you know, like full DTC e-commerce for a lot of brands is just the, the economics and the, you know, the ability to, you know, create a meaningfully sized basket out of a brand specific or even a manufacturer specific product portfolio 
um, you know, where those economics work. It provides the right shopping experience for the customer, the right repeat purchase value proposition, you know, all that. And some brands will figure that out and are figuring it out. And it's great. Um, other brands may never get there just because of the, the physics and the, and the economics involved. What we really believe in is leverage the heck out of those digital connections, right? If you're a brand with an app, if you're a brand with a website and you're getting customers in there, engaging with your products, learning about them, um, and they're immersed in this, uh, in this information, give them a replenishment option there. So let them, you know, if I'm a, if I'm a diaper brand and I have a new mom and these, those sites have crazy traffic, right? Um, even if I'm a cereal brand and, you know, it's a new mom, uh, you know, trying to figure out either how to diaper my kids or how to feed my kids breakfast. Um, you know, why not leverage that interaction to say, hey, you can put, you know, you can get on a regimen of, of this stuff and just set it and never have to worry about it. You can rotate through, you know, four different flavors of, of cereal. You know, you can go on the diaper regimen and we're going to move you through the sizes. You can engage in all that directly on the brand property. And then if you can handle that as a brand, you can service the DTC demand. If not, you can have that demand. And this is one of the cool things we enable at Replenish at Replenium. We call it brand to retailer, where you can take that, do that discovery, set up the replenishment regimen, and then drop it down into your retailer replenishment basket. So now the brand gets full visibility and relationship with you as a customer. The retailer is servicing it. You're getting all the data back uh, as the brand. So is true, that's kind of a true symbiotic relationship there between brand and retailer. Um, and we, we're really bullish on that. And then, you know, there'll be maybe other like customers like that shopper, and maybe they're shopping directly at the retailer. Well, great, you know, put your replenishment, put, you know, affect your replenishments down there at the retailer, but let's share that data back with the manufacturer. So in turn, we can identify even more items to replenish, you know, for that customer. So we think there's a real opportunity to break through and to create some real, real new, deeper levels of partnering between brands and retailers with us. It's been my experience selling in SaaS solutions in particular into entities that one of, if not the biggest obstacle is implementation, getting the resources, deploying the resources, having them prepared to do it. So what should retailers and brands that work with you expect from an integration and timing and effort to get a solution up and running? And how, if at all, do you help them on that journey to make it less painful? I really, I appreciate that question because we just live it every day. Um, on the brand side, you know, we've done a really good job. We have a very simple SDK that the brand can, you know, uh, basically program against, drop it into their site. And it's experienced that as long as they have commerce on their site, or as long as they, they don't even need commerce, as long as they display some, some semblance of a PDP, as long as they have that, um, and we can put a replenished widget near a product, then that's pretty easy to do. Um, that is so easy. That could be done literally in a matter of just a few days. Uh, what we do find is that the brand and agency relationship tends to be uh, uh, a little complex. And so agencies can sometimes try to make it a little more difficult than it needs to be. Um, uh, particularly kind of web and design agencies can make it a little more difficult, but that's it's super fast. Brands can implement in a matter of days. On the retail side, it's also very similar in that if you want to um, basically, you know, use the out-of-the-box solution, we're talking to one of the very largest retailers today in the world. 
Um, and they're actually looking at potentially just using our base experience and creating their own section of their website, you know, which is not necessarily ideal because you at least got to market people over to that section to go find the replenishment items. You know, not ideal, but we can implement that in like 30 days with a retailer. So, you know, a retailer may say, yeah, I'll start with that so I can get it in, start getting some proof, getting some data going, and then I'll do the full deal. And our full deal implementation is we're a set of microservices that basically if you, um, you know, you can build all the front end, front end, the front end experiences for the customer, right? So, you know, whether it's, you know, search or browse results, whether it's, you know, product detail pages, whether it's special sections on the site, promotion sections, whether it's even in the cart, um, you can add, you know, replenishment widgets uh, next to those. Once you click the replenishment widget, everything behind that is ours. Um, up until you get to slot selection and whatnot for logistics. And then we need to interact uh, and integrate back there. So, and then we ultimately merge into the cart. So even the most complex integrations, uh, you're probably talking about 90 days for a retailer, you know, and that's with, you know, having a few, you know, call it, depending on your complexity, three to 10 internal dev heads spending time on it during those, during those three months. So we recommend start simple, just get it in, get some reps, get your customers using it then leverage the data to get, you know, get a little bit more sophisticated in how you implement it. You previously told us about how it is to partner with Replenium and actually get the solution implemented with the retailer and for the benefit of a brand. I'm going to jump into the world of the benefits, but before I do that for the benefit of our audience, it is the seventh inning stretch down in Colorado and the Dodgers are well on their way to getting mathematically eliminated as Peter Bond correctly predicted at the beginning of the show. So why don't we jump right into the benefits? And what did Yogi say? It ain't over till it's over. Seventh inning stretch. And, and the question is a straightforward one, Tom, which is, you know, there's implementation and there's outcomes and return on investment. So whether you're a brand or a retailer, what's the type of return on investment that you're already starting to see in the marketplace out there with implementations you've done, full SDK or not? And is it data? Is it insights? I mean, the solution seems pretty straightforward to me as let's go do it as opposed to procrastinating way too much. Mm -hmm. Is it customer experience? So, I, you know, we, we built it to be all of the above. Um, so I'll just some stats that we're seeing uh, in, the, in the live implementations today. And I will say that these far surpassed what we had expected. So we're seeing... Uh, average items preloaded into a cart to the tune of about $80 worth. Now this is at retail, right? So you've got, you know, $80 worth of stuff where the system has said, you know, uh, hey, Peter, on Monday, your replenishments are going to be ready to picked up, be picked up at store one, two, three. Um, come on in, you know, add your order and then come on in Monday and pick it up. And then you can go in and review replenishments. You know, might, you might want to pull a couple things out, push a couple things in, but you starting with you're starting with eighty dollars in that basket, and then even adding to it uh, from there. So we're seeing really good basket size. We're seeing about a, between a ten and twenty percent uh, increase in customer value over time, right? So, and that's coming from uh, uh, higher frequency. Right, because the replenishment items, they basically, they kind of work for you, right? And they go and they tell the shopper, hey, it's time to be, it's time to replenish. 
you know, here's your basket, add to it. So the cadence of items actually create the shopping occasion to happen a little bit closer together than it would have otherwise. And then of course you get larger baskets. Um, we're seeing um, the average replenishment uh, increment. So time between, uh, you know, the set time between deliveries uh, at the item level is at about 17 days on average. So you think about Amazon where your shortest duration is a month in their bigger packs, right? But when we're working at retailers that are full basket retailers, average is 17 days. So two and a half weeks, it's crazy uh, at the item level. And so, you know, if you have a lot of items on replenishment, you're probably doing a replenishment basket for sure less than every couple of weeks. Um, so that, so that, that drives a nice number there. Um, the range of categories that we're seeing uh, on the program in these full basket retailers, you know, we know traditional center store, the stuff that Amazon would sell, packaged grocery, you know, health and personal care, beauty. Of course, those things make sense, uh, household. Um, but we're seeing things like the packaged deli case, the dairy case, frozen. You know, lots of those perimeter categories are are being uh, are being introduced to this. So, you know, that's a that's kind of a nice surprise for us. And that's I think part of why we're seeing eighty dollars, you know, preloaded into baskets. So, you know, there's, there's all those kind of transactional benefits. So, you know, the retailer gets higher customer value, you know, good repeat basket size, helps re-commerce economics, you know, all around, uh, uh, you know, to that, to that extent. For the brands, they get all the data uh, from these transactions. Um, you know, brands do fund this as well. I mean, it, it's not a free ride for the brands. Usually the brands are funding a customer discount of some sort. Doesn't have to be deep though. Five points usually gets it done. Um, so some level of customer discount, good use of that discount money, by the way, because it's going to your loyal customers. Um, and then usually some capability fee, you know, a few points uh, to administer the program. But, you know, it's less costly than administering a coupon or, you know, most any other fee for a retailer program. Um, uh, and in return for that, the brands get, you know, access to these customers. They get, you know, kind of locked in loyalty, you know, to their to their brands from their loyal customers, you know, so something that they have to continually fight for, um, you know, they get actually done and they get an annuity return on that, right? So yeah, you're, you've, you're, you're spending a little bit of marketing money up front promoting the program, but most of that money is going right to the customers that are using it the most, you know, the end consumer that's using it the most. You also as a brand then have marketing access to those customers, right? So, you know, if a customer is a, a loyal fan of a certain flavor or brand of cereal, and you have a new product coming out, you can go right to those customers and introduce that, uh, introduce that product, and you've got kind of a ready market for those. So for the brand, it's really, you know, it's loyalty, it's, it's, it's ROI on marketing dollars that we think, you know, is pretty tough marketing spend to beat. Um, and then that's a kind of stuff that's executed at retail. And then if you're doing it on the brand site, you know, it's just better return on, because you're paying for traffic, to come to your brand site, you're you know you're 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 paying to maintain those digital properties and keep folks engaged. This is a great way to monetize that engagement. The pandemic has brought incredible growth to e-commerce for consumables, and it's also brought about the rise of demand aggregators like Instacart. So, from that demand perspective, if brands um, either miss the opportunity to build D2C relationships with consumers. Is the race just beginning or is it somewhere in between? 
So I have always felt like now is the time. You know, I remember being, you know, the very early Amazon back in 05, you know, going around to manufacturers headquarters and convincing manufacturers that this internet thing is really going to be something. And, you know, grocery e-commerce, there's a future here. And by the way, at Amazon, we have 40 million customers. Uh, <laughs> that uh, That's what we had at the time uh, that we think we can sell this to. And I know you've all had a tough experience with Webvan uh, and others before, but we're really going to help you guys get back, you know, directly in, in, in connection with your customers. And we can re re bypass all that traditional friction that, you know, retailers tend to throw up uh, to get in the way. Uh, so, you know, I felt like then was the time and we're 16 years later now. Uh, and I still feel like now is the time. Um, I think brands have certainly done a lot toward that. Um, I don't think they've missed the bus. Um, I think that, yes, for sure, during the pandemic, I think that the retail side, including the demand aggregators, you know, moved several years forward um, in their uh, in their growth cycle. Um, to some degree, that's really good uh, because now all these platforms are a lot more valuable to the brands, right? You know, when Instacart was nascent, it wasn't necessarily that valuable of a platform for the brands. You know, when when Kroger's platform was nascent. It itself wasn't that valuable for the brands, any retailer, Albertsons, you know, every, Walmart, everybody. Um, heck, even Amazon, when it was early, wasn't really that valuable to the brand. But we've seen, you know, the retailers have really served to, to wake up the customers to the importance of this digital connection. And so I think that brands are at a really good spot now that, you know, if they're creating their, their DTC strategies where I'm going to engage directly on my properties, um, if I want to push these consumer facing platforms, uh, you know, to best align with my objectives, um, I think everybody stands to win in that, right? I think a well-aligned retail platform that serves its customers well, um, that brands are participating in that messaging, in that value that's delivered to customers, and we can share data back and forth through that. Maybe that's still utopian. Uh, to me, it doesn't feel that utopian, and it feels like we're kind of right there now. So I don't think anybody's missed the boat at all yet, but I do think the rest of 21 and 22 is going to be a significant uh, time of transition and, and kind of like land grab uh, in this area. Now I'm going to go to a question that I've waited in this interview to ask one of the originators of groceries delivery at Amazon and grocery shopping at Amazon, and that is... In the recent past, Peter and I have observed 11 Amazon Fresh grocery stores have popped up. Brick and mortar, as brick and mortar as the definition of brick and mortar has been done over a century. Is that the future of Amazon grocery? We'd love your prediction and your um, rank punditry on this. So, um, you know, it sounds cliche and you hear, you know, you hear, Brian Olsowski, Amazon CFO, or you hear Jeff B, or you'll hear Amazon executives always talking about, right? We focus on the customer and we innovate on their behalf. And that's exactly what they're doing in this space, right? They want to solve as many of their customer needs as well as they can. Um, and, you know, the, the grocery and food shopping needs of their customers is a very important uh 
not problem or challenge, but a very important element of their daily lives. Um, you know, we started with base pack package grocery to the best we could do it within the platform. We then added subscribe and save to help a little more. Um, you know, we started the first version of Amazon Fresh that looked an awful lot like a traditional, you know, route-based local grocery delivery service. We learned a lot uh, doing that. You saw some iterations of that with pickup. Uh, you saw that evolve to Prime Now. You saw Amazon acquire Whole Foods back a handful of years ago now. Um, you know, and I think each time they've, they've made these different moves, it's not as a result of the prior move failing. It's a result of the prior move, you know, not quite getting it all the way done. Um, and I think, you know, that they clearly they learned a lot with the Whole Foods acquisition. Um, you know, they're not a company to just take on an asset like that and not do anything with it. So they've been actively learning from that. Um, I think that they've learned through that, through their efforts in Fresh, that, you know, a store-based environment uh, or a hyper-local environment for a grocery shopping experience and or utility is important, right? So at a minimum, having that inventory really close to customers to, to distribute to them uh, is important. Um, uh, and if that's in the form of a store, uh, and that that store can provide an effective solution for some portion of their needs, um, then I think that that's, that's important for them to do. So, you know, they have a lot of prime customers. They're looking to serve their prime customers in, in, in many ways. And, you know, I think to me, it seems pretty clear that they've determined that there is an opportunity in a physical grocery format that's not Whole Foods, right? That is smaller, that is simpler, um, you know, it can be really effective. And those are not going to be in far flung areas and big, you know, big footprint, big footprint formats. Those are going to be very local, very proximate to their customers, right? Amazon's very adept at having inventory positioned close to their customers so they can be responsive to their needs. This is just the way they do that with, with goods in these categories. So I think you will see lots and lots and lots more uh, of these formats. Will they continue to be exactly as they are now? I don't know. I mean, my, my sense is Amazon's going to continue to learn. They're not afraid to change and try new things. When things aren't working, they're not afraid to stop. So I think you're, I think store formats, though, are going to be, in this category particularly, is going to be a pretty uh, important um, element of the service offering for Amazon going forward. Inventory proximate to their customers. What a great reason to buy one of the front store non-pharmacy businesses of two major national retailers that come to mind. Anyhow, that's just my one-fiftieth of a dollar. I want to remind our audience that all of our content is available to you. It doesn't cost you a dime. Just go to cpgguys.com. And we'd also love you to follow us on LinkedIn. If you're on LinkedIn, I hope you are, because we're kind of a B2B podcast. Just go on to LinkedIn and enter in the CPG guys or CPG guys. You'll find us there. Click follow. Reason? We publish a lot of content and a lot of content that we think you'll find interesting. Links to our podcast articles that we publish, we think are interesting. All of our announcements are there. Follow it. It's pretty useful. We'd love to have you. I think by the time this airs, we'll have already passed 5,000 followers of our LinkedIn page, and we are very grateful for that. 
So we're going to put a link in the liner notes of that podcast, just using the term liner notes dates me. Uh, but we're going to put in a link to Replenium and also Tom's LinkedIn profile so you can find out more about him. Tom, thank you so much for joining us and having this conversation. It was really enlightening to me. Shri already knows all this stuff, but I'm sure he learned yeah, one or two things himself. Well, but thank, thank you, you both for having me. Hey, Shri, um, I think you may be right about the Dodgers not be winning the day today. Uh, you know what? I'll, I'll rescind my mathematical elimination of the Yankees if if you if you reach Dave Taunt with me as well, and we'll live to fight another day. But thank you for in the making. Mr. Bond rescinded a word called mathematical elimination of the Yankees. That's because why don't we update the audience? The score is four to eight after seven. Uh, um, we can't thank you enough for joining us. My pleasure. All right, everyone. Thank you. And we look forward to having you join us for the next episode of the CPG guys. Bye. The content in this podcast episode is provided for general informational purposes only. By listening to our episode, you understand that no information contained in this episode should be construed as advice from CPG Guys LLC or the individual author, hosts, or guests, nor is it intended to be a substitute for research on any subject matter. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by CPG Guys LLC. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. The views expressed by CPG Guys LLC do not represent the views of their employers or the entity they represent. CPG Guys LLC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, or inability to use this podcast or the information we present in this podcast.